This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. To that reality right now, mm. which is why we pray that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which motivates us to do things like pursue ju justice and be witnesses in the realm of justice, but also to love well yeah. and yeah. to raise our children in hope uh, that that whatever circumstances may prevail, there is a better day coming that we're leaning yeah. into. Yeah, I really love that, you know, in a lot of Black novels, there's like this element of, of Afrofuturism um, I'm thinking off the top of my head, Colson Whitehead's book, The Underground Railroad, which was also one of my cultural artifacts from two years ago. And there's this scene at the end that's so, it's majestic, like in the way that it's described and in the way that it kind of resolves everything. And without giving that away, I think it was just such a powerful picture of oppressed people need to dream. Oppressed people still need to imagine. Oppressed people still need uh, to think about a future that maybe we won't experience ourselves, but that our children can experience. It's, I think, important for us as we talk about legacy to think about history as a, a, a kind of a conduit to that legacy. How important was it for slaves? How important was it for the Jim Crow South? How important was it for our ancestors to dream? You know, from your perspective, what's the what's the element and what's the impact of dreams as it relates to our our ancestors? I think of, you know, we often think about enslavement during um, the period right to and into the Civil War era, but there was a period in the antebellum area era when the Civil War was far off mm. and people weren't necessarily predicting a conflagration like that, which would end enslavement. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is you had people born into slavery who everywhere they looked around was slavery and there was no hope of right, right. ending the institution. Maybe you could escape, but that was remote and dangerous. And so, they had to live their entire existence saying, this is most likely going to be my lot. Hmm. Hmm. And I am quite sure that I am where I am today because somewhere along the line, historically, I had a praying grandmother hmm. who envisioned a future, hmm. not for herself necessarily, but for their, her children's 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 children. Yeah, yeah, and and so envision. So prayer becomes a way of 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 envisioning a future for Black people. Mm -hmm. But there were also visions and signs. Right, this is why the Black theological tradition often takes the Exodus as its starting point. Hmm. Because even if we look around us and there's oppression and marginalization and bondage, we can see a God who delivers His people. Hmm a God who breaks the chains and leads folks through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. Mm -hmm. And so there's a theological imagination among Black believers that has been there 
for generations that helped us to envision a future. It wasn't necessarily Afrofuturism as we now think of the yeah. term. Um, it was it was a, a theological Afrofuturism, yeah. if you will. Yeah. So that's actually the word I was going to use, the word imagination. Yes. That's really the interesting element here. And it's really the powerful element as we think theologically and as we think about our legacy is do we have the imagination to see? Do we have the mind to comprehend? Do we have the the eyes and and kind of the vision to anticipate what will come? And it's so important for us, especially within the black church context, is that we're always reaching for something. We're always straining for something. We're always fighting for something. And as we think about that kind of black theological imagination and, and what it means, it often scares us because it almost makes us think, we're pushing too hard for something that might be too difficult to attain. And so I think it's actually the discipline of us saying, no, us pushing the church and pushing our surroundings is actually not just an act of resistance, but it's an act of, of love and of joy. And it's something that we must remain committed to because even if we don't think we're going to experience it ourselves, our push, like our movement, we talked about this in the justice episode, it, it, it matters and it's doing something in us and it's doing something in the people around us. And so I think for a lot of us, we're asking the question, it's why it, it's why it's so important for us to avoid nonsense arguments. It's why it's so important for us to avoid time wasters. It's why it's so important for us to avoid, avoid uh, white nonsense, <laughs> you know, because it distracts us from the ability to imagine. We're so we're so consumed with trying to prove to someone else, so consumed with trying to beat an argument or get around a an apologist or a theologian who is, you know, pushing back against us. And we have lost the ability to imagine a better future because we're so drawn into the now. And that's what racism is. Its function is distraction. Right, right. Who's that? Tony Morrison? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's one of the things you've been really helpful about, particularly on this podcast, is to constantly frame our discussions as best we can as black-centered discussions yeah. without just responding and reacting and, and um, having a reflex toward what white people have done. Mm-hmm. And that takes imagination, because yeah. so far, our imaginations for anything, theologically, socially, politically, professionally, educationally, have been constrained by a white imagination, if you will. Right. What is possible, feasible, creative, exciting from the standpoint of people who have been racially empowered whether, mm. rather than the standpoint of people who have been racially disempowered. And so that is a constant sort of decolonizing of right, our imagination, right. right? And in my in my sort of speaking about racial justice, I frequently enough get the question, and interestingly, it's it's oftentimes from white people, as we talk about fighting racism and all this stuff, they say, what's the goal? <laughs> what is the end goal, right? Like, what's the what's the end game here? And yes. what I sense is coming from that question is, what more do you people want? <laughs> well, and so thing. yeah, so it's different if it's so. I asked that question a couple of of episodes ago, but as we think about that question, it's different if it comes from 
depending on who's asking. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with these folks, with folks who ask me in the context of, say, a public lecture or a talk or something, it's like what what they're trying to do is say, you've already got everything you need. <laughs> There's just something sure, in you sure. holding you back, whether laziness or a victim mentality, et cetera, et cetera. But on the flip side, I think there's a positive way to ask that question. What does it look like? What does a racially just and equitable society look mm, like, mm, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what was so enrapturing about um, King's I Have a Dream speech. Right. The dream is, is, is the vision of what it looks like when we have made progress toward our goal, right? And we can get so caught up in doing the work now mm-hmm. that we're not thinking about the legacy. We're not thinking so much about in specific mm-hmm. about the future mm-hmm. and what that might look like. And so I think there's also another element to Afrofuturism, which is the first one we've talked about is kind of this idea of community, but then also the personal, right? What are we capable of? And imagine a, a world where we can fully flourish. Imagine a a time when you are fully realized. Yeah. Right? In yeah. your in all of your your essence, in your blackness, in the way that you conceive of your purpose like fully being able to to run and excel in what God has called you to do so there's this discipline of imagining ourselves imagining ourselves as a community but then there's this this also this simultaneous discipline of imagining each of us individually in the best that we could be right and that's why it's so powerful for us to actually direct comments of encouragement to each other and to ourselves personally, right? Like there's so much negative self-talk that goes into this, you know, kind of vision of who we could be, who our community can be. And so I think if we're going to be all that we can be, you have to be all you can be. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to take you flourishing. It's going to take you excelling. It's going to take you overcoming, conquering, being able to, to, to really level up to your fullest potential. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so that's that's why I think it's so important for us. We're thinking about it, you know, so much in the I will no longer be oppressed. But who could you imagine who you could be? You know, and I I um I was listening to I I talked about him before, Anand Gerdadas, and he was saying that the you know, not to get into all this, but it's just we're here. He was saying that the that the liberal wing of politics is doing a poor job of selling imagination. And so he's like, you know, imagine what could be started if you didn't have to worry about this, this, and this. Imagine uh, what endeavors could be achieved. Imagine what equity could be seen in your city. Imagine the elimination of poverty, (laughs) you know, like even these basic things that we feel are just, well, we we're stuck with this it. It's reality forever. It's a reality. And it's like, well, well, imagine it if you didn't have that. Imagine what could take place. Um, and I think that's so powerful. It's so powerful. And and I feel like sometimes we don't feel like we have the permission to, to think dream. like that. Yeah. You asked on one of the uh Ask Me Anything segments, um, you know, what I would be if I if I wasn't, you know, in this occupation or whatever. And I think the corollary to that is, you know, what would you be? How would you live mm. if 
racism wasn't such an all-consuming reality, right? Mm -hmm. Which Mm -hmm. is, again, like you're saying, painting a picture of what could be. Um, If I didn't have to address race head-on every day, both personally and in public, who knows? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I'd Mm -hmm. still be a writer, but what would I be writing about? You know, would it be fiction about space exploration? Mm -hmm. Would it be history of some other aspect of our history other than racism? Uh, Would it be, you know, entertainment and pop culture? Who knows? Right. But those are the things that we are so rooted in our present reality that we can never sort of lift ourselves high enough to just imagine. Yeah. You can't breathe long enough to imagine. You can't breathe long enough. You can't sleep well enough to dream. <laughs> like you can't. And, and that's that, the that's the hard part and that's the discipline I think we have to and and I think that impacts how we live, how we eat, how we move, all of that because well, I think we have to create that margin. Dreams are fragile, right? Yeah. Cuz woe to us who 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 dream of a freer reality, and then have this rude awakening. Mm-hmm. Nah, mm-hmm. it ain't happening. The rejection, the inevitability of the rejection yes. of our dreams, where dreams really do turn into nightmares. Right. Well, there's so much more that we are going to talk about, but we have to take a break. We'll be right back to talk about the witness of legacy right here on Pass the Mic. So, Jamar, we've been talking about the witness of legacy from the perspective of Afrofuturism and imagining and dreaming. But then there's a more tangible element of the witness of legacy, and that's children. <laughs> that's literally our legacy, yes, right? the children. Uh, from a biological, yeah, children, right? <laughs> from a biological standpoint. You know what I found so, so funny is I wish I had an Afrofuturistic look when I was younger that I was going to be a parent one day. <laughs> I wish I would have had that that dream and, and imagination because, man, parenting, y'all didn't tell me it was going to be like this. Y'all didn't tell me it was going to be. It's hard, man. This is interesting. You know, I'm, I'm seeing one of the hardest things is when your child starts to mimic you and when your child starts to act like you. And so um, my daughter now, she'll she'll repeat back words if we say them with the right like tone. So the way she's like subverting us is when we tell her not to do something, she'll just repeat back what we said because <laughs> she knows we'll laugh. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> you know, my wife will be like, stop that. And she'll be like, stop that. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then just on cue, my wife will laugh and she'll just run off and Trini will run off, you know. And I'm like, wow. So now they're really imitating us. And there's a part of that that's cute. And there's another part of that that's absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because there are parts of ourselves and all of us that we don't want to be imitated. And, you know, you got a mini me running around. That might not be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So as I think about that, I mean, being a father has taught me so much about legacy and about kind of the protection of the future. I really think about my experience having been a middle school teacher and principal. Yeah. 
and working with hundreds of kids. Um, and in the classroom, you know, you begin the school year first day with all of these dreams and hopes about what your classroom right. might be. You start really imagining. Yes. Oh, we always have these beautiful <laughs> dreams of what our students will be able to accomplish and do and what kind of people they'll be. And in very short order, they bring you back down to reality. And but then the, they show up. <laughs> the harrowing part is the harrowing part is your classroom is a reflection of you. Mm. Mm. So whenever, you know, we were doing uh, training on classroom management and things, uh, we basically had to face ourselves and say Mm. that whatever behaviors were happening or not happening were uh, a direct comment on what we ourselves as the adults um, were allowing to happen. Wow. Wow. And so if a class was unruly, wasn't getting work done and all of that stuff, there's a reason for that. Because these same students with another teacher are totally different in the classroom, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or if a classroom is going well and students are achieving at a high level, it's not because, oh, they just put all of the high achieving students in this room. Mm -hmm. It's because the adult in that room was doing things to foster openness and curiosity and a culture of, of hard work and all of these things. So... Whether parenting or or working with students or whatever, children will show you who you really are. <laughs> oh man, yeah, they're mirrors for whether us. Whether you're right? ready or not, yes. And there's also, I think, this sense of um, everyone has hopes for their children, but I think there's this sense of dread as it relates to black children that there's this fear. You know, when we found out, well, we actually didn't know. I kind of had this feeling before um, when my wife was pregnant. And we were going to have a daughter, you know, first time around, I was like, I, th- I feel like we're going to have a daughter. And I told her, I said, that terrifies me because I see the state of how mm. society treats black women. And I also see myself and I want to know, am I capable of raising yeah. a black woman, you know, that truly loves herself and truly experiences, you know, the beauty of who she can be and who she should be within this cultural context. And so I was like, oh man. So I was, there was a sense of terror in that, but you know, it kind of also hampered, hampers our ability to dream of our child's future and the beauty of what that could look like and to, you know, allow that to empower us to do something about it today. I think about between the world and me and, you know, Ta-Nehisi talks a lot about this idea of his father beating him out of fear for how society would treat him. That's so real. And it's like, yeah, like you totally, you get that point. And it's like so much of that fear has driven like black abuse of kids, you know? So much of that is like, you know, it's driven our families to be kind of this this station where we basically say no, and here's all the things you can't do. And in this very, very tight circle of things you okay now we can allow you to do this in this place and that place and it's a very small window of activity and but it's it's all fear-based it's all fear-driven it's all trying to protect against the impending dread of white supremacy and i don't think that's how we're supposed to parent i think we're supposed to parent protecting our children but i think there's a level to which that becomes unhealthy and we start fixating on on the possibilities of attack rather than the possibilities of flourishing. Mm. 
I think there's an issue there. And I think there's a broader conversation about black parenting that should be had because there's, there's a part of it that's survival. You take like the talk right, as it relates to police engagement. Like that's important. Mm-hmm. But then there's another part of that that becomes stifling and yeah. it becomes uh, suffocating for a child to grow up and actually flourish and see themselves rightly. Mm. That whole concept or the reality that black people live under this sort of constant low-grade state of threat has birthed an entire genre of literature of older black people writing to younger black people. Mm -hmm. So James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time is addressed to his nephew. Ta-Nehisi's is addressed to a nephew or is it his son? His son. And then um, a recent book, Breathe by Imani Perry, is, oh yeah, I heard it's amazing. I haven't had a chance to check it out. I'm about halfway through. It's poetic, man. Um, and and so she writes to to two of her, both of her black sons, and she says, um, "But no matter how many say so, my sons, you are not a problem. Hmm. Mothering you is not a problem. It is a gift, hmm. a vast one. And whether you are the biological parent of a black child or." a volunteer or a youth pastor wow. or an educator wow. of a black child, man, they are not problems. Oh the idea goodness. that they're problems is the problem. And getting to work with or serve children, and especially black children in this racist context, mm-hmm. it's not a problem. It's a gift. Yeah. A vast one. Joy DeGraw talks about this. You know, she's, she mentions post-traumatic, you know, slave syndrome and the way in which parents refer to their children. Hmm. And she talks about how the difference between like white parents talking about their kids and black parents talking about their kids as well. And how there's a holdover of black parents talking negatively about their kids, not because they don't love their kids, but because if they were doing so, other means it would be taken, you know, Mm. like, or, Mm. you know, that would compromise them. Right. And so it's even those types of things as we consider the, the legacy of the past, like, you know, beating our kids, you know, yeah, <laughs> like even yeah. those types of things, which I think is a, a legitimate question that we should, you know, really discuss and dive into, which is, you know, what does corporal punishment look like? What does discipline look like? And where, and where are the con- motivations? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. What's the motivation and restorative context? And so, man, working to think about our kids, not as a problem, how do we practically do that? Not as a burden, not as, you know, a threat to society or a threat to themselves, like how do we how do we engage in that in a way that's healthy, but also promotes our legacy and recognizes that there's such great opportunity in them? We were talking earlier about imagination, and I think one of the things that we need to think about creatively is what achievement and success looks like for black children. Hmm. Because so often Yikes. our lessons to kids, both of what to do and what not to do are pointing them in the direction of this sort of so-called American dream. Wow. Pointing them in a direction of getting what white people have, Mm. access Mm. to places where white people Mm. are, wealth that white people have, right? And that is seen as, quote, unquote, making it. Um, But if we use our imagination, Mm. we can get a lot more creative. So I still live in the town where I taught, and Mm. I started teaching – back in 2003. So my students, some of them have have their own kids right now. Mm-hmm. And I see them around town almost every day. Mm. And what amazes me 
is as much emphasis as we placed on a particular lesson or data or ours was a college prep school. So going to college and many of them didn't. What really matters, what really I care about for them as adults is that they're decent human beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They love Mm -hmm. well. They're kind to other people and generous. It's those character things, you know, those quote unquote soft skills. Right, Right. And to me, you know, a lot of uh, the the biggest retail employer in our town is Walmart. It's the only one in the county. And so they're working in a job that doesn't require a college education, that's paying minimum wage, that professionally a lot of people would look down on. Right. But I see it as, as such an achievement mm-hmm. because what mm-hmm. they're doing is they've grown up, they're making a living as best they can, they're loving family. Hmm. They're engaging with friends and community. And I'm like, that's, that's, what it's a, all that's about. the dream right that's there. That's it. That's the dream. You know, uh, when I started doing youth ministry, one of the commitments that I had is that I I felt as though when I was a young person that I wasn't heard, hmm. that I was talked to or talked at instead of really like talked to. And so I wanted to create an, an open environment. So throughout, you know, the entire time, you know, I was working with young people. I made it so it was service was more of a like dialogical. Mm. And so it was really engaged. So there's, there was intentional moments of engagement, you know, so I, I didn't preach behind a pulpit. Like I preached among them, like I'd walk through them and talk, you know, and, you know, we would ask questions and, you know, because one of my dreams is, you know, to start a program that really trains up the next generation of compelling communicators and basically practically trains particularly black and brown young people how to communicate well in whatever situation, because I think it serves the, the purpose of deescalation. It serves the purpose of um, getting you into places where you would not have originally been. That's my story, you know, where you probably shouldn't have been, you weren't qualified to be in, but then also kind of, um, creating this opportunity for them to speak well, to speak beautifully, and that their their language and their mastery of language is something that will give them the words to articulate their future. And mm. so that's that's one of the things is how well are our children communicating? And so I want to create this program to do that. And that's, you know, that's kind of out of the scrapbook bucket list, you know, <laughs> vision board type thing. But I think if if we're not writing down goals for our children, if we're not writing down what success looks like, they'll import whatever they see in popular culture. Wow. Yeah. And so I think that deals with us us handling what success looks like for us individually and then importing that to our children. Yes. Enough to say, I want you to be well read. I want you to take care of your body. One of my goals for my children is at a certain age, uh, I just want to put them in in counseling <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to yeah. work through whatever traumas mm. that <laughs> we trap pass down to them. To my parenting. <laughs> yeah, but pass down to them. We probably traumatize you. I want you to be actually in counseling earlier than I chose to be in counseling mm-hmm. so that you're better in relationships, you're better for yourself, and you're better in the kingdom of God as well because you're actually healthy enough to love God and love neighbor. You know, That's with really all of good. yourself. So 
I think it's important for us and it's incumbent upon us to to write down those dreams for our children. Yeah. And I think everyone has a place where they can they can get involved in the witness of legacy. Yeah. And this we have to, you know, hold space for those who are unable to have children or who desire children, right? That's very important in this conversation. We hold space for you like we see you. But there's still a a, a level of involvement in legacy. There's still an involvement of of legacy for us. Uh, for all of us to get involved in this. So for me, it's communication. For me, it's, for my kids, it's therapy, you know, mm-hmm, making sure that mm-hmm, they get that mm-hmm, help. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it for you? And I think that's something that our our listeners and our audience needs to consider and needs to collaborate with one another to bring into being. Yeah. The only way that future becomes a reality is if we actually do something about our current state and if we make it intentional, and so I encourage you to make that intentional as you think about your legacy, whether you have children or not, there's a way that you can always get involved with the next generation and get involved with the future to build a better world. That's the witness of legacy. Well, this has been part six of our Can I Get a Witness series, but we have our favorite segment right after the break. Of course, three questions with Tyler and Jamar. We'll be right back here on Pass the Mic. Well, hey, family, this is Tyler. We're just taking a break from today's episode to tell you about an exciting offer for you, our listeners. If you're like me, as much as I try not to, the first thing I do when I wake up is I am so tempted to look at my phone. If you're like me, honest enough to admit it, then we want you to try this. Instead of checking social media, open the Abide app. Start your day in the spirit and peace of Christ. Abide is the number one Christian meditation app. Abide users report less stress, lower levels of anxiety and depression, and also better sleep. You can start your day off with Abide's daily meditations that are based on biblical scripture. These audio meditations will center you and draw you closer to Christ. You can get started right now with 25% off of a premium subscription by downloading the Abide app at abide.co forward slash PTM. You'll get additional stories, meditations, premium music, soothing sounds, and more. That's A-B-I-D-E dot C-O forward slash P-T-M to download the Abide app and get 25% off your premium subscription. And we're back for everyone's favorite segment. And I say everyone's favorite segment because I know it is 100% successful. 100 percent you're like wow Fake I'm, news. i cannot believe that they believe this or think this or i didn't know this about them okay. it is enlightening <laughs> it is yes. all right let me start with the first question here what's your drink of choice jabbar uh just like non-alcoholic or what's your drink of choice jabbar <laughs> <laughs> uh a lot of people hate on um on carbonated waters like like LaCroix. I like it. Oh, like a Topo Chico? Like, like a Topo Chico, yeah. yeah. Like a like a Perrier, you know. 
that okay. kind of stuff. Bet, bet, bet. Because like the bubbles, thing. the effervescence, uh, what, what, whatever, uh, <laughs> whatever. What, that culi- what culinary experts say is the bubbles. If you're eating mm. a greasy food like a burger or a pizza, the bubbles cut the grease the said in your mouth, and that's why it's so satisfying when you're eating those kind of meals. Nah, you out of here, man. <laughs> you, this guy just talking about cancel, communication. Bro. I want to start a program to teach nah, children man. communication. <laughs> now he jones in me because I use the word. Because I use the word. Effervescence. Of, Don't let of folks like Tyler water. dampen your intellectual light. What's your first question? What's your first question? Since we are talking about legacy and you were a youth group pastor, what is the best youth group activity you've done? The one that just got all the kids pumped, excited about, you could do over and over. Oh, uh, like a game situation? Yeah. Man. Okay, so non-game, it would be inductive Bible study. That's been like the huge, you know, thing for us. Um, doing group inductive Bible study has been amazing. But game related, there there was this game called uh, Death Ball. And <laughs> that's yeah. like a great youth group activity. So there was this game called Death Ball. And basically, it's it's like a souped up like monkey in the middle. So you you sit in a circle and then there's one person in the middle and they pass you know, like a dodgeball back and forth across the room trying to hit the person who's in the middle. So yeah, it it's really, it's a fun game. That sounds fun. And so there are a couple of rules, like you can't, um, you can't uh, toss the, you can't hand the ball to someone next to you. And then also if you hold it and then the person who is in the middle runs up and tags you, um. Then you're in. Oh, yeah. Wow. So it's okay. like, yeah. It's it's basically like a, a monkey in the middle situation. My, my, so, my. Yeah. All right. Very good. Um. Number two for me. Um. If you could watch only one movie for the rest of your life, what would it be? One movie. Hmm. Um. Probably Ocean's Eleven. Really? Yeah. That's a good one. It's a really good one. It's fun. It. It moves pretty well, and it's an ensemble cast, so you're getting a variety of personalities. We got to talk about the fact that it's like the blackest scene ever when Bernie Mac is like, what you want me to do? You want me to shine your shoes? You want me to dance for you? Might as well call it White Jack. Jump on the table to dance. You want me to smile at you? Oh, that movie's Bernie so good. Mac, yes. I love it. I love Rest it. Rest in peace. Oh, uh, yeah, man. Go for ahead. For you, um, favorite childhood cartoon? Favorite childhood cartoon? Ooh wee! It was probably uh, Gargoyles. Oh yeah, yeah. I was a wow. heavy Gargoyles fan. So for me, That's it was all about cut. it was all about the ensemble and kind of the differences that they had within the group. And um, man, it was just it was so much subtext in it. And I think the first. I, th- I want to say the first two seasons were unbelievable, huh? especially Gargoyle season one. Y'all, go- I know y'all got Disney Plus. Y'all can go back and watch it. Gargoyle <laughs> season one. So Gar- you've been going back and watching it? No, yeah. Gargoyle season one is is uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, okay. So last question for you. Um, let me see here. I was gonna say something else, but <laughs> besides insects and spiders, what animals annoy you the most? Man, look, I'm an animal lover, right? Like we were just in South Africa. We went to uh, a reserve, a game reserve, and like 
the folks I was with, I don't know if there's a black culture thing or what, but they were like freaking out just at the idea that a, a live animal would be in their vicinity. Can you blame them? Um, I don't. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of these things where we need to use our imagination to envision <laughs> a reality where black people are <laughs> dominion over the earth. <laughs> um, oh, you're so evangelical. Uh, come on. Um, <laughs> there are some animals that creep me out. I mean, just the feeling of oh, mosquitoes. Okay, mosquitoes. They don't course. creep me out, but uh, they make me mad because yeah, I live yeah, in the mosquitoes. Delta, which is mosquito capital. Oh, yeah, it's mosquito country right there. No, nah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, number three for me. Favorite children's book. Say to up like fifth grade. Who favorite children's book? Man. Man, probably Corduroy, man. I don't know if I know that one. Yeah, yeah, probably Corduroy. Yeah, Corduroy oh. Bear. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very good. Yeah, I think I think that was. I'm trying to think of if any others like stand out to me, but that's the one that it like emotionally affected me. Huh. It was like emotionally affected so much so to the point to where I would have this bear and I would like make sure that I was always I kept the bear in the same place in the room. Because I'm like, I want the bear to feel like we left him. And, oh. you know? <laughs> yeah, man. You know, you know, I'm out here loving neighbor, man. Loving even my <laughs> inanimate neighbor. You know? <laughs> Thank you all so much for tuning in to part six of Can I Get a Witness? Where we talked about the witness of legacy. You can reach out to us at underscore Pastor Mike, at the witness BCC, at Burn Swing 3, at Jamar Tisby. We will see you next time right here on Pass the Mic. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.